just as LEDs made lighting more efficient for our houses, diamond LEDs can make this ultraviolet light more energy efficient. So we have this proof that we can use water purification in places where we don't have great infrastructure. There's typically using mercury vapor, vapor lamps, not very efficient, not very appealing because they have mercury. But if you can do this with LED, you can now connect a solar cell to it. You can have a remote purification base that's extremely efficient, easy to operate, purifies water and makes it safe. You can take that same system and you can apply it to air. If there's, for example, a case sometime in our future where there's a virus we have to worry about, you could use that UV light to sterilize that virus on a plane, in a school, wherever you want to do it. Welcome to It's a Material World, the show that uncovers why material science will change the world, with your hosts, David Ye and Puneet Upadhyay. Before we get into the episode, we have a free MSC company database categorized by industry sector, location, as well as internship and full-time titles, so you can find that link in the show notes below. And without further ado, let's get started. Hey everyone, today's guest is John Seraldo, the Chief Technology Officer for WD Lab-Grown Diamonds, a pioneering material science company and global supplier of high-quality lab-grown diamonds that sets a new industry standard for innovation, transparency, and sustainability. Currently, they use chemical vapor deposition methods to create the world's first 100% climate-neutral and sustainably-rated lab-grown diamonds. In this episode, we will uncover the parallels between diamond production process and the semiconductor industry, while also diving into exactly what makes these processes sustainable. Thank you so much for joining us today, John. We're very excited to talk to you. Thank you. So I guess before we get into the technicalities of this diamond growing process, it's worth pointing out that there is massive upside for the diamond industry if this growth process can be mastered. You were mentioning this, John, in a, in a previous phone call. So I was wondering if you can discuss your motivations for joining this company and what you hope to accomplish as chief technology officer to kind of help your company achieve its full potential. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I joined WD this year. I've been in diamond, or actually last year, excuse me. I've been growing diamonds for a number of years. And I, uh, I was really drawn to the industry for a few reasons. Chiefly, and, and really why I joined WD, we're, we're very focused on sustainability, transparency of product, bringing a, a level of ethics to this industry, which was, was needed in the past. That's very appealing. And then you look forward, what comes next with Diamond? And this is the other reason that really motivated me to get into this in the first place. There's, there's amazing technical upside to Diamond that goes far beyond gemstone. In the short term, you can have incredible impact on, again, that sustainability of a product, but long-term developing new technologies in the realm of quantum, in the realm of semiconductor, water purification, all kinds of areas that can really have a meaningful impact on the world, and you have a material that can solve a lot of pain points in that technology. So that's very appealing. What I hope to achieve in this, in this position, really driving the future of that technology. We've gotten very good at growing gemstones, certainly a world leader in, in quality and capabilities there. That's maturing. And so now we need to look forward what comes next. And what comes next is these technical applications. So developing that technology and proving it up. So I guess, quick question, since I believe maybe a subset of our audience might be 
interested in pursuing a, a career path similar to yours. So what exactly does a CTO do in your space? And you know, what is the responsibilities and the projects look like? So CTO is the chief technology officer. They are a senior executive, C-suite executive, managing all aspects of the technology. That ranges from looking at the infrastructure, the inputs to our tools, gases, power, water, all that, making sure it's configured well. You can imagine these are pretty large facilities with many, many reactors growing material. Infrastructure becomes very critical. So ensuring that that is up to par and obviously integrating with people who have some expertise there. My background is as a material scientist. So the biggest aspect I have is making sure that our tools are set up and designed to be able to run the processes we want to run and then develop those processes. So how we grow diamonds, how we do these things. Uh, there's a lot of science that goes into here, the, the chemistry in the reactor, getting all the parameters right, power, pressure. We work with plasmas and there's some things that have to be done to control those plasmas. There's a lot of improvement that can happen in that area. And as a scientist and an engineer, I, I, I happen to be both. I work with trying to figure out how we can make those improvements, implement those improvements, and work with a team of engineers and scientists to achieve those goals. That's an interesting differentiation that you make is between an engineer and a scientist. I, I've actually had that question before is, do I classify myself as an engineer or scientist? And you said you classify yourself as both. Could you maybe elaborate more on what parts of your job you think is more of a scientist and what parts of your job is more of an engineer, just so that we can give kind of context around the difference between the two? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, just to clarify, I'm an engineering physicist, so by design, I have master's degrees in both physics and engineering. I would say that a scientist is looking to develop new technologies. So we talk about semiconductor. There's a need to develop some ways it, with for diamond to make that process amenable to those future technologies to make the qualities go from a gemstone quality to a semiconductor quality is fundamentally different to make the sizes and the scale of what we produce the so diamond is you know relatively small as a wafer for a semiconductor application quite a bit larger so making that transition requires a lot of ingenuity and development over long scales versus engineering is taking those things that we figured out how to do. We, we figured out how to grow a diamond very well, for example, and scaling it to hundreds of tools, right? To take it and do it many, many times. To take the infrastructure of a single tool, you have a gas come in, you have power come in, fairly straightforward. It gets very complicated when you have hundreds of tools and some of the things that happen with those tools and interactions. Power is a good example where you can have one power supply can sort of produce noise of the line that affects another power supply down the line. And how, how does that work together? That takes an understanding of sort of real-time applications. And that's more, I would say, of an engineering aspect. So it's the marriage of those two things. I, I think that it's very interesting because for Pranith and I, at least, our majors are in material science and engineering. So we're both. So <laughs> it's definitely uh, kind of the chosen field of what you want to do is more researchers and more the scaling and so i guess going into the technology like the scaling of the science is currently the method that you guys use is called chemical vapor deposition or cvd so maybe can we go into how this process is generally performed and how it differs between the similar semiconductor industry but compare that to what you do in the diamond industry so let me explain a little bit of what cvd is first so it's a, it's a very elegant scientific process that allows us to produce materials, essentially. The, the way it works is you have two precursors. They're 
vapor, chemical vapor deposition, right? So vapor is very important. They're in a the gaseous phase. They're introduced in a chamber. Typically, that chamber is evacuated first, so you have a very strong control over the purity of the gases in that chamber. You introduce these two things, they react, something comes out of it. And that something is maybe a metal, maybe it's a metal organic or something. And this is the basis for a lot of what, what is grown in the semiconductor industry. Intel chip starts with a silicon wafer and a series of processes to deposit and pattern different materials. And most of that pattern or that de deposition rather is occurring through CBD. And the next question is how is the process different in what we do versus the semiconductor? The simple answer is it's not. <laughs> it's chemical vapor addition. Fundamentally, it's the same. The big difference, of course, is that we run longer, right? We grow thicker. So in a semiconductor application, films are on the order of nanometers, sometimes even a little bit less than that. You can get into angstrom scale films. And diamond, you're growing millimeter scale. So it's much, much bigger. That becomes a control problem. So as you grow longer, other things can happen. Unusual things can happen. You can get, you know... Do you have time for defects to propagate, to expand, some of that stuff to occur? So it gets a little bit challenging in that perspective, but it's the same base process, just run longer. It's sort of like the difference between a sprint and a marathon. They're both running, but obviously <laughs> things get a little bit different in a marathon, right? If you're going to run for a long time, there's some challenges. There's also some challenges to sprints, to be fair, mm -hmm. but fundamentally they're both just running, right? So it's kind of the same thing. Can you maybe dive into that a little bit more in terms of the challenges? You said sprints versus marathons. Can you give us some maybe like basic examples of what challenges there are in the semiconductor industry versus the diamond industry? Yeah, I mean, some of those challenges are fundamental engineering challenges. So power supply in a deposition that takes seconds isn't going to fail, right? In general, statistically, it's not going to fail. Not, not too much happens in a second scale. That same power supply running for days or weeks, there's a lot of potential for problems during that time. And those can get catastrophic. You can imagine if a process crashes in a reactor on a crystal that's growing for, you know, three millimeters. There's a lot of stress when, when that process shuts down. There's heat in this process. And all of a sudden, like that, the material cools down. That's going to put a lot of stress in the material. That's going to cause some challenges in dealing with that stress. And one of those things is like a crack, right? It's, it's a natural, you know, we're up for embassy, so we, we, we more or less understand this. So that, that becomes a challenge. Controlling the phase of the material becomes a little bit more difficult. So you have time for twinning effects you'll for those of you who are studying msc you might not know this yet you'll you'll <laughs> learn this as you go on but you're trying to produce this the single crystal material mm -hmm. relatively easy to do in thin films it gets a little bit more challenging to maintain that single crystallinity and control those defects over long scales because there's just time for things to evolve and that's that's the issue everything that you're trying to control takes time to evolve and you're going to run in those time scales so you're going to have to address how those things evolve. It's crystal crystal growth versus thin film, really. So I remember that lab-grown diamonds were in the news probably maybe like five to 10 years ago. So the field has been around for a little while. Has chemical vapor deposition been the go-to method for the entire time? And if so, how has the improvements occurred over the time that we've been working on it? Because like you said, we've tried to improve the process, but there's still more to be done. So could you kind of give us a timeline of where we are with chemical vapor deposition? Yeah, for sure. It's a great question. It has not always been exactly the go-to. So if you, if you go back to five years, there are really two methods of growing diamond. 
One was the HPHT method, high pressure, high temperature. It recreates what happens in, in the earth. So, you know, you take carbon and you compress it and you heat it up, kind of like being in the core and diamond grows mm. with some nucleation. The CBD sort of circumvents that. So it's grown at a lower pressure, a relatively lower temperature. And we try to work around the tendency for carbon to grow in other forms and then try to create diamond. So there, there are different approaches. CBD in the early days has, has some challenges, but it has more controllability. And so it became more appealing. Your question is how it's evolved and how it's evolved is we've gotten better at controlling it. That's come in a couple of ways. So, so obviously there's some process improvements that happen over time. We have to understand the conditions in this fairly complicated process space how those conditions interplay with the synthesis of diamond. And then we get better iteratively as we go through that kind of kind of learning cycle. Additionally, we've had to make improvements to equipment. So again, the difference between CBD for semiconductor and CBD for diamond, it's not really there other than timescales. If you take those same power supplies that have been used historically in semiconductor and you run those for a week so then they start to fail. The, there's a, the, the transistors are running very hot for a long time, for example, things that just aren't, they're not used to experiencing. And so there had to be some improvements to those tools, which came from industry to make them more robust for these long scale processes that facilitates us running longer times. Those are really the biggest changes. And it's mostly on the operation side, how we use the tools we have. The tools have not changed substantially over the last five years. The next five years, we may see some additional improvements, but Right now, we're really working on the fundamentals of the growth and, and getting that perfect. And I think we're we're pretty close to perfection there. The quality of what we've grown has improved dramatically. Sizes have, have significantly improved. The color of the diamonds we produce has significantly improved. So we've gotten very good at that. Today, we can grow at, at almost arbitrary sizes of very high color. So we talked about it from the operations standpoint, and now I wanted to go into the sustainability perspective. So how does your methods like the CBD process compare to more traditional methods from the sustainability standpoint? You mentioned the like unearthing it versus like the HPHT. So I guess wanted to see a comparison there. Yeah. Uh, so fundamentally by its very nature, CBD is going to be more sustainable. You know, we, we have modern state-of-the-art facilities. Personally, we operate outside, just outside of DC. So we're operating in the US in this very modern facility versus, you know, very old technique of you just rip the earth apart, right? I mean, it's essentially what it is, these masks <laughs> that you can see from space. It, it's almost a, a given this is more sustainable because it's more efficient, right? We, we've designed a process to do a thing rather than discovering a thing and just trying to work around how to get it. I, I mean, you know, in getting a diamond, you have to go through thousands of tons of material to get a single diamond. It's, it's, it's horribly inefficient, right? Whereas we grow, all, all of our carbon is controlled and we can use it very, very targeted. Beyond that, we, we have traceability, which we can build into our material. We, we look at it a couple of different ways. Obviously we trace it through our entire product life, but we have markers that allow us to identify it in the industry out of the field. So if you pick a diamond out, we're developing technology that will let us determine was that grown here. So this gives us some traceability and allows us to ensure what happened during the lifetime of the stone that previously hasn't existed in, in the industry. But fundamentally from, from ground up, it's just a more efficient 
more sustainable process. And obviously, WD being the first sustainable company, as you mentioned, we've been heavily focused on how to optimize that. And we continue to do, do that sort of optimization with what we can do with our power to ensure it's the cleanest power, what we can do with our operations to make sure the most efficient, we recycle our cooling water, we do everything we can to minimize our impact across the whole operation. So quick question there, John. So you mentioned traceability and markers. Can you go into the importance of that? And I guess what is used for those markers? Like how are those markers implemented? So that's being implemented now. So it's not fully vetted out, I'll say. It's really about knowing where your material came from and knowing that what you say you do, you do. Knowing that if we show that we produce material in this facility, and we have people who have independently evaluated our facility, ensured that we're operating, evaluated the people we work with, every part of our supply chain to ensure that we're maintaining sustainable standards. That's great. Now we have to be able to validate that everything we produce has gone through these processes, through these facilities, that we aren't mixing it with some batch of other material from somewhere else, that we're not doing any sort of sleight of the hand. Transparency is the key there, right? Do what you say you'll do, prove that you're doing what you said you did and and not relying on, on your word, essentially. Historically, that's kind of been how the diamond industry works. Someone could say they do something and it's not really validated and there's no way to check. But being able to look at chemical markers in a material and say, yes, this came from this facility, it went through these processes, you know that you maintained what you said you'll maintain. And again, we're, we're still kind of finalizing the details of how we'll do that. So that's something that'll, that'll be more vetted out as the year goes on. But it, it's an important step in, in getting to transparency. So yeah, you made a comment that now we're getting to the point with CBD that we can make diamonds of arbitrary size and of great clarity and color which gives them a lot of potential to be used for actual jewelry. But one thing that we want to dive into now is with the arbitrary size and color, can you start to replicate some of the same properties that jewelry has now? And then maybe we can also dive into other potential applications of the diamonds that you grow. Yeah, so I'll answer that a little bit of a different way and say that we are already, we're in the mall. Um, if you go to the mall, you'll, you'll find stones that are produced from us. But more importantly, we're we're now in the high-end jewelry space, and we, we're already there. So Oscar Masson, a, a beautiful heritage company, with a, a very reputable name in high-end jewelry, has announced, uh, I guess, last year that they're using our stones to produce their jewelry. Again, they're, they're coming at jewelry from a sustainable perspective, and so they're working with us from that perspective. Uh, there are a number of other high-end jewelers that I, I won't say right now who are using our materials. So we're already there. We're already producing these large, beautiful, you know, colorless stones. As far as what it is about our process that enables us to do that, this is where, where the science really comes in. It's process optimization, and that's a difficult thing. As your audience gets to school, they'll learn a little bit more about this. So I, we talked a little bit about what CBD is, and it's two gases, and it's, it's basic state two gases that are introduced in the chamber, introduced in the chamber, and reacted. In reality, it's far, far more complicated than that. And it's made dramatically more complicated when you use plasmas, which is the basis of all we do. We use the plasma enhanced CBD process. It makes a very complicated process space with a lot of variables. And tuning those variables is tough. My background is semiconductor. My business partner at the startup I had prior to joining WD was as well. And we brought that expertise into WD 
WD had a lot of expertise that had been developed through the Carnegie Institute and owned within their facility over many years to develop process. We brought some additional knowledge in. You can kind of get a sense of how complicated the process is just by how much information went into getting that right. But it takes years and a lot of work to optimize those process parameters. And once you're able to do that, you can do amazing things, right? You can control how material grows. But it's very challenging frankly, very challenging, and it's just taken a lot of optimization. We're now at the point where it's well-tuned and we understand the growth kinetics well enough that we have a lot of control over it. So we talked about the CVD process, so I wanted to briefly go into like the properties of diamond itself, so then we can maybe start the conversation of the potential other applications we can see in the future. Yeah, it's a complicated conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I know about like the, the thermal conductivity of diamond, maybe you can go into that in a little bit more detail and just kind of walk through maybe some of the more important properties of diamond and I guess how the the structure property relationships work there. Yeah, it's a it's a heady conversation. Diamond's a <laughs> it's a really fascinating material. It's an exciting material. So it's 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 a very high optical index, high index of refraction. That that has a lot to do with its beauty for a gemstone, but it's also an ultra wide band gap semiconductor. For those of you who are new to this field, you'll, you'll get to know <laughs> what that means. But uh, band gaps are very important for the electrical properties. It's a direct band gap, which means it really gets to sort of the usability of that band gap for electronic applications. You want to have a direct band gap. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Being ultra-wide means it emits a high-energy photon when it goes through a de-excitation. So we can talk about that for LEDs in a little bit if you'd like to. It's also, it has a very high voltage breakdown, which makes it very appealing for high frequency devices, also for ensuring uh, low gate leakage for devices. This gets into transistors and technology. You mentioned the thermal transport, probably the, the most interesting property of diamond. It's well known for being the hardest material known to man, and that is correct, it is, and it's used for that for a number of applications, but it is also the most thermally conductive material known to man. Now you can imagine we're, we're all on computers right now, and there's a chip in there that has billions of transistors that are swapping billions of times a second, right? That generates a lot of heat. That heat's gotta go somewhere. And that heat goes somewhere through the substrate, the material that the device is grown on. Most substrates don't remove heat very well, and that produces a lot of challenges for the devices. They can overheat. They as they get hotter, that band gap, that electrical property of the material changes. It, it opens up or actually pinches out. Controlling the heat in that becomes really critical. And doing that fundamentally has to happen in the substrate. So you need a material that you grow on that is, that is thermally transparent, as, as thermally as transparent as possible. A diamond gets as close to transparency there as any material can. And so it becomes very useful for drawing that heat out. That's great in a computer chip. It's a really big deal in a high power chip. Something like uh, what would be used in infrastructure, what would be used in electric cars, what would be used in motors for the AC-DC conversion. Uh, there's a lot of power going through there. There's a lot of heat generated because of that power. And that can really affect the performance, the longevity, and the efficiency of those devices. So if you can manage and control that heat, you can improve all of these aspects. Very exciting. You can also, as a result, make those devices smaller. You know, we, we talk about how many transistors there are in a chip. There can't be that many, that density of transistors in a chip if you can't control the heat density in the chip. 
not as bad for a low energy device like a processor, really big deal for a high energy device like, a, again, electric car or something. So getting control over that allow you to, will allow you to make those more efficient and smaller, which has some cost efficiency benefits. You can imagine that the principle of the semiconductor industry is scale, right? Get as many chips onto wafers as you can. That means making them small, and that makes all the manufacturing more efficient. But again, that, that gets a controlling the heat. So that is by far the most interesting property. So previously, when labyrinth diamonds were created, their primary use was for like drill bits and other things for their mechanical hardness. And now we're talking about the thermal conductivity and like the ultra wide band gap, which are different properties. What is it about your process that allows it to be used for its other material properties other than its hardness? Is it the arbitrary size or the optical clarity, which I know is an, uh, a very hard challenge to do with the HPHT? Yeah, uh, well, it's really process control is the biggest thing. So you, you're right. The early use of the diamonds was, was an abrasive. It was using the tribological properties. That was mostly HPHT diamond. There's some other technologies. It's not really CBD diamond. CBD diamond allows good control. You can imagine an HBHT press, they're, they're massive, monstrous things. And they, you know, they have this little tiny cell that this room-sized device crushes down to produce diamond. You can't see what ha was happening in this little cell. You can't really control it very well. With a CBD reactor, you can look in, you can use tools to, to probe the windows. You can monitor and control growth as it happens. That's really critical to getting good results in material. An, an analogy we, we talk about at WD, the difference between gemstone and semiconductor. In gemstone, a person uses what's called a loop. It's little, you've probably seen them, these little like microscopes you wear, put up next to your eye. They magnify 10x. They look at a diamond, it looks good or it doesn't look good. That's the resolution. Semiconductor uses an electron microscope and looks at the atoms. Right, that's, that's the level of control needed at the semiconductor scale. And that means you need that sort of you know, related control in the growth. And CBD is amenable to that control. So how do you get to those applications? You have to control the defects. You have to control the purity of the gases that go in there. That becomes really critical. And CBD is amenable to that sort of control. That is why it's a process used in semiconductor to begin with. Interesting. So you mentioned uh, process control, you emphasized that. And earlier on in the conversation, you were talking about the, I guess, the importance of monitoring defects, catching defects, and especially in this in, in this industry. So I was just wondering, we, we've heard from the 3D printing side, the potential for like machine learning or like artificial intelligence to be able to capture those in real time. I'm just curious, is that something that you all are, are thinking about or potentially incorporating into your methods to capture those defects? Um, uh, <laughs> 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 yeah, but th there's potential there, but uh, we won't, we won't say what we do or don't do in our company, of course. So, okay. okay. <laughs> Sorry. I saw the smile creeping on, on your face. So I was just like, oh, I don't know. If no, I it's, a it's a great question. It's a great question. Well, well, then, yeah, we'll dive into the last property you talked about, which was that ultra-wide band cap. Can you explain to us exactly in more detail what that means and more about the de-excitation of the electron energy and what unique applications you can take from that, like water purification? Mm. Yeah, that's exactly right. This is, this is the uh, most exciting thing, too. So first, let me give you a little bit of motiv motivation why we care about water purification. One in three people worldwide 
one in three, one in four don't have access to clean, safe drinking water. A huge percentage of the population, 1.2 million people die every year from toxicity in water, bacterial infections. So this is this is a understandable problem, and it's a major problem, right? LED purification has been tested for for this, or rather, I should say LED, uh, UV purification. It, it was an LED, to, to be precise. And it has some real nice advantages that you can set water purification in a field. You don't need to have a lot of infrastructure. You can have infrastructure purification implemented very simply. As you get into LED, you get a lot of efficiency. So let's talk a second about what LEDs are. Essentially, they're PN junctions. So you have two dope, a co-dope material, really. So you have a P-doped and an N-doped. I understand not everyone's going to quite follow with that, but we're introducing chemicals to the crystal structure material to modify its electrical properties. And as an electron moves through that material, its energy is changed. And as an energy of an electron changes, it emits a photon, by definition, it emits light. How much of an, elect an energy drop a photon experiences corresponds to the wavelength of light that's emitted. So if you get a very large band gap, you get a large energy. You start to move from visible spectrum to uh, UV. Gallium nitride was probably one of the most important materials discovered in the last 30 years for, for semiconductor. And what it did was derive LED capabilities. So gallium nitride has a, a wide band gap, so it can emit a blue light. This introduced blue rays. That might not sound that exciting, but the next thing that came after blue rays was you can package this with some chemicals around it to broaden the spectrum of the light and you can get lower energy lights. So if you start with blue and then add in all the other lower energies, you can go to white light and all of a sudden you can have LED lighting in your house. You can have LED backlights in your TVs. You can have LED headlights. You can have all of this stuff that came from gallium nitride and the emission of blue light. Diamond is an ultra wide band gap, so it takes that blue and shifts it even farther into the UV. Mm -hmm. And just as LEDs made lighting more efficient for our houses, it made this thing we require to be more green, right? Diamond LEDs can make this ultraviolet light more energy efficient. So we have this proof that we can use water purification in places where we don't have great infrastructure. There's typically using mercury vapor, vapor lamps, not very efficient, not very appealing because they have mercury. But if you can do this with LED, you can now connect a solar cell to it. You can have a remote purification base that's extremely efficient, easy to operate, purifies water, and makes it safe. You can take that same system and you can apply it to air. If there's, for example, a case sometime in our future where there's a virus we have to worry about, you could use that UV light to sterilize that virus on a plane, in a school, wherever you want to do it. So it's very appealing. It's, it's a a great way to to handle purification in a very efficient way and it, to do it with leds you require this wide band gap you require these high energy photons ultra wide band gap becomes a necessity the farther you can go into deep uv the better because there's more energy there's more effectiveness diamond is a deep uv emitter and so it's very appealing to those technologies yeah that's an awesome application i guess one thing we have talked about is like four applications that are trying to serve the less fortunate the the needy one thing we should think about is cost, uh, as it's probably the lower the cost, the more we can make, the more we can help. How does CBD affect the price of diamonds? 
and kind of how do you see the price of CBD going down? Have we already hit the main drop in price from process improvement, or is there still a lot more wiggle room in the price that we could eventually see in the future? It's a great question. We have seen certainly some price erosion. Uh, we could talk about it from the gemstone perspective, and it's largely stabilized. There'll be some continual erosion in price as we move forward, but it has largely stabilized. Rather than saving money in gemstones, what's really happened is people have gotten larger, nicer gemstones and spent the same amount of money, and that's that works out well. It's a little bit different conversation when you talk about semiconductor. The scale is fundamentally different, right? A, a diamond is small relative to most things we experience in our life, but absolutely massive compared to a transistor, right? You can have trillions of transistors in the size of a, a nice gemstone. So scale there, it, 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 there's a lot of work that needs to be done to get the substrate price down for some applications. For others, it's already there. When we talk about some of these high power applications where you have gallium nitride on stuff for producing a high power transistor, Diamond is going to cost a little bit more than the substrate that's produced now, whatever that stuff is. However, the devices themselves can be made much smaller because you bring that, by making it thermally transportive, you bring that footprint down. So you can do many, many more transistors on a single wafer. And that, that's how you get to the cost savings there more than on the substrate. And already it can be cheaper to produce on diamond than it is to produce on other competing materials. And then we'll make improvements. So as, as you said, as we make process improvements, that will come down. It's going to have more impact there than it is in the gemstone where we have a high level maturity in our growth processes. But yeah, so there's a lot of evolution to be had and that is occurring and it obviously will make those things a lot more realizable. The main thing we need to focus on today is getting the scale up and the rest should come along for that rise, the benefits. So we need to be able to make those wafers larger. And that's what we're working on. So I, I think I missed this, but what material is like currently being used for like these LED or, or UV for water purification? Is that gallium nitride or is that um, another material? Yeah, so gallium nitride is not deep enough. There really isn't a lot being used for LED. There's, there's, there's a few materials, compound semiconductors that are used, but nothing works especially well. So it, this is a place where there's kind of a, a hole where a lot of the Deep UV technology being used now is still mercury vapor lamps. Got it. So, so there's there's a lot of improvement to be had there. It's it's very appealing from that for that reason, right? It's not efficient enough. We can do better, and it this is uh, fundamentally a materials problem, right? You can you can't solve UV engineering through tweaking silicon. It's not going to get you there. You you need to come up with new materials, new solutions that are driven by materials. So this this is a perfect example of a truly MSE problem to be solved. Now we'd like to get into gaining your perspective from the sustainability side as a whole. So clearly sustainability continues to be a very important factor when it comes to developing new products and processes. And so just based on your experiences, like before WD and at WD, what do you think generally other companies, both within and outside of this diamond industry, can do to, I guess, improve their sustainability efforts? Oh, that's a great question. Um, in terms of what you can do to improve your sustainability efforts, I think it, it depends a lot. So I, I could talk a little bit more probably about the diamond industry and generalize that, but it's going to be very application specific. It, it's, it's a holistic approach. That's the only way you can actually make an impact, right? So Whatever your process is, you have some inputs and you have your outputs. 
you really need to control all these inputs. So we could talk about power, what we could do to make our power more efficient. There's a lot in our industry we can do there. There are a myriad of ways you can make it more efficient. You can think of it in terms of how many carrots of diamond you get for this input. And if you can maximize the, time, the amount of carrots, you minimize the amount of energy, amount of carbon footprint per element, right? Uh, you can look at where you're getting these sources from and ensuring that they are using sustainable practices, kind of a social engineering side of it, support sustainable companies, work with sustainable companies, really think about your energy and where that comes from. That's obviously a critical one. What we can do to ensure we have, again, the most efficient use of energy, but also the best sources of energy. On the other side, there is a responsibility that's required in transparency of product to, to sort of control that the sustainable products are identifiable, that people can acquire sustainable products, that they know what they're getting and that they can make those choices, right? You kind of have to facilitate the customer's ability to make smart decisions. Um, and if you don't, then nefarious people in your industry will take advantage of that, right? Inevitably, that's, that's true in any, in, in any industry. Yeah, but it's, it's fundamentally, it's a holistic, you look at everything, every source of water, is there things you could do to recirculate the water to make it more efficient? The exhaust that comes out of your tools, can you repurpose that? Can you do things to control that? It's, it's, it's every aspect of your operation. It's, it's, it's a complicated subject for sure but it's obviously worthwhile. Is there anything that we as consumers can do to have more sustainability? I know that I don't think Kunith and I have ever gone diamond shopping. So <laughs> as we're starting to gear up, uh, is there anything that we can keep in mind or anything that we can differentiate to uh, try to be more sustainability conscious? Well, obviously buying lab made is a good choice from a sustainability perspective. That is just a true statement. We would like you to buy a diamond from us. <laughs> we don't sell directly to you, so that's, that's that'll be. But yeah, I mean, there there's a little bit of understanding of who you're buying from. It does make a difference where it's grown, truth be told. Grown in the U.S. is obviously going to be held to a little bit different standard than in some other parts of the world. Hmm. So, so there is some effort you can take to know where you're grown from, but certainly choosing lab-made diamonds. Look, it's more sustainable. It's supporting technical research for, you know, a, a greener future. So there's a lot of upside there from a sustainability perspective that is, that is real. Yeah. But that's, that, I mean, that's really the most you can do. Are you seeing like just in general, I know this is maybe more of a business question, but now that they're like the younger generation is maybe more like passionate about sustainability or just aware, aware of the importance of it. Are you seeing like with them gaining more purchasing power, there's a like they're willing to pay a premium on sustainably made diamonds. Is that something you're seeing generally? Yes. Okay. For sure. Um, and in reality, you don't have to pay a premium to buy a sustainable diamond. We're cheaper than the earth mine counterparts. So there's cost savings there. But in terms of a desire to make more ecological choices, absolutely. The younger generation is driving it. The younger generation is also forcing a change of perspective in older generations, which is fantastic. So they're, they're applying pressure in a number of ways to make everyone make more conscious decisions, which is, you know, just incredible. But yeah, they, they, they are, consumers drive all of this, right? They, you, you have a choice when you go to a store, what you buy, and when you make a choice to buy something that's sustainable, you force industry to make more sustainable products. And it, it is a very powerful impact you have.
Yeah, voting with your wallet is one of the exactly. most useful resources we have as consumers. Absolutely. Great. Yeah, we discussed a myriad of topics revolving around Diamond's properties, processing, and applications. Uh, we would just like to end today with any advice you would give to MSCs who want to pursue a career in this industry, or maybe more broadly, how you ended up as a CTO role like you, and maybe any experiences or reflections that you've had on the way that you think helped your development. Yeah. Um, work hard and stay in school. <laughs> Number one, you know, I got involved in research early. I knew I wanted to be on the research side. And so I, I got into that very, very early. I did both engineering and, and physics when I was an undergrad and I did research programs in both fields. I found what I really liked and what I really liked was working with materials. So I pursued that. Obviously, grad school requires research. So I stayed there and I looked for roles that were aligned with what I wanted to do. I aligned with my sort of core competencies, and that was vapor deposition processes, crystal growth, and the material deposition. So I, that, that's what I enjoyed and what I stuck with. But I made conscientious decisions there. I looked for jobs that aligned with it, and that's really important. If you want to do well in the industry, figure out what you really like doing. And it's a little bit harder for Crystal growth at times to find positions, but if that's where you want to be, don't settle for you know other careers. Focus on that. Develop as many skills as you can. That is probably one of the most important things. I I learned to produce devices. I learned to so I can I can talk about LEDs. I know how they're designed. I know how they work. I can talk about transistors. I I do have a degree in electrical engineering as well, so I know the device side pretty well. I have a diverse set of knowledge, and when you have a diverse set of knowledge you're a very valuable asset to companies. And, and with that, I, I drove myself where I wanted to be in, in the industry. Yeah, I think there's like a important thing to emphasize there is like your focus level, especially like with my job search too. At first it was very broad, but the second I kind of honed it in on the medical device industry and specific roles that I knew MSCs would be a good fit for, the process became like a lot more effective and results came out of it. So I think it's important to stay focused once you figure it out. Do you have any quick advice in terms of figuring it out and figuring out like what you want to do and, and things like that? Did you just happen to like your first research position was related to vapor deposition or did it take some time to find that? Yeah. I mean, the answer is it was my first research position wasn't related to vapor deposition. <laughs> and I liked it. Actually, I was, I was doing uh, some aeronautical research, control systems for autonomous planes. It was interesting stuff. But it wasn't, I wasn't like super passionate about it. I didn't love it. So the answer to your question is I tried different research areas. I felt it out a little bit. So I actually did it in different things. And there was one that stood out for me, and that was that was the materials research. Everyone's going to have their own thing, but try different stuff. School is an opportunity to try things. Take a couple of classes in some different focus areas. Think it really hard about what classes you like. I fell in love with physics really early on. So I, I made that a big part, part of what I did. I really liked the device side as well. So I stuck with that, but I, I tried stuff. I tried classes, I tried different research fields and then one stood out. Um, if you stick with one, you might be missing something. So it's about, school is an opportunity to try things, use it. Knock on professor's doors. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, I think that wraps it up for us. Thank you so much for joining us today, John. Thank you, it was great, I enjoyed it. As a materials engineer, we can make an impact in nearly every single industry. 
But with that versatility comes a lot of options to choose from. So if you have no idea which position or industry is right for you, you're not alone. I've been there, done that. But just for a moment, imagine narrowing down your ideal role and company within the week. Imagine being able to secure your dream offer without having to apply to hundreds of job openings. Our online course, MSE Academy, includes video testimonials, resumes, interview prep, and mentorship from materials engineers who have been in your shoes. We also connect our members with companies and industry professionals in our expansive network to help accelerate your job search process as much as possible. To learn more and get started, simply click the link in the show notes below. And if you enroll within the next 24 hours, we'll add three bonus career-related resources. I hope to see you there.